Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch. Hi, everyone. I'm Bar, the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo. And together, we are two data nerds and entrepreneurs who decided to start a podcast to feature today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. So on our first episode, we're actually going to have one of my favorite people. Her name is Sandra Noodleman, and I actually just found out that you met her three and a half years ago. I don't even think she knows this. So tell us the story, Bar. Yeah, I was just reflecting on, on the very first time that I met Sandra. I think this was um, maybe three or four years ago, one of the first um, chief data officer conferences that I attended. And you know there were a variety of topics that were covered, and, and um, Sandra sort of really brought her um, experience across digital transformation and um, and, and banking and, and fintech. And I remember her specifically because of her very, very bold ideas. Um, she seemed really sort of fearless and had a, a lot of strong opinions on, on different topics. And I was really I sort of uh, struck by um, struck by that and by her presence. And so I'm really thrilled to, to hear from her. I also uh, heard through the grapevine that she's a sci-fi fan. Um, so really stoked to hear specifically about that as well. Yes, we, we go into it quite a bit. I'm going to leave that to the element of surprise. So you can actually listen to the episode and hear what Sandra's into. And then the other really interesting insight, I know that at her previous role uh, within J.B. Morgan Chase, she was running all aspects of data. But now in her current role at Wells Fargo, she runs not only data, but how data connects to all the different engagement platforms within Wells Fargo. So it's not just about treating data as a practice that really deals with the collection and analysis of data, but also treating data as a practice that deals with the activation of data. I thought that was a really interesting decision from perspective of Wells Fargo in terms of how they um, decided to put their uh, teams together. So that and more on this episode with Sandra Nodelman. Okay, hello everyone. And welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast, the podcast that interviews some of today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. I'm Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, the content intelligence platform. And I'm here for a really fun conversation with one of my favorite people in the space, Sandra Noodleman. Um, so Sandra, I'm going to introduce you real quick, and then I'll, I'll let you do like your own version of your own bio, because I feel like we need to know your life story from your perspective. But here's your official bio. Sandra Noodleman is the head of consumer data and engagement at Wells Fargo, a role in which she's responsible for developing digital growth strategies for Wells Fargo's customer segments from consumer and small business banking to wealth and investment management. Previously, Sandra was the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Chase, where she was responsible for driving the company's cross-functional data strategy and helping the company realize business value through data. Sandra, it's great to have you on the show, uh, and I'd love for you to tell us a bit of your story. Yeah, so thank you for having me. It's always lovely to partner with you on things. Um, and so I'd say, yeah, my current role is Head of Consumer Data and Engagement Platforms at Wells Fargo. And it's a really interesting and innovative function, um, one that doesn't exist, I believe, in other banks across the industry. And it was born out of the realization that if we think about the competing in the future as a bank, we need to have really strong data-driven insights powering how we speak to our customers, whether that is for marketing or sales um, or servicing. Um, all of those objectives need to be powered by data. 
And so whereas in the past, my prior role was very siloed and focused purely on the data and analytics stack, um, this is much more integrated and it encompasses the data and analytics, but also the marketing tech stack, also CRM, also our financial health capabilities, as well as customer experience, be able to knit that all together uh, with the intention of creating a singular, consistent customer experience for Wells Fargo customers, even though they're technically being served by three separate lines of business, consumer um, and small business banking, consumer lending, and wealth investment management. So knitting it together through data and integrating it with the engagement platforms and channels that directly speak to our customers. So, so it's interesting that you say this because I do feel like there was a trend where data and analytics uh, were kind of their own function in the past and maybe even currently within a large number of companies. But what you're saying is that at Wells Fargo, you guys have made a very proactive decision that it's not just about having data analytics, it's about how data and analytics empowered the rest of the stack and the overall customer experience. So now you're running a lot of different teams not just the data analytics. Is that what you, what I heard? That's exactly right. And something I knew from past experience is that when you have these siloed functions in a lot of companies, marketing sits separately from someone who owns the personalizations engine, which sits separately from the people who own CRM. And those are all things that need to integrate. And they all need to integrate with the data stack, both in terms of analytics and operational data. So bringing all of those things together so that you can get to a consistent platform um, is really helpful. It's, most, it's more efficient. It's also better for customer experience and better for the business's bottom line. How do you guys work with the IT team, the tech team? Um, so we are really passionate here at Wells Fargo and me in particular about agile transformation and moving towards consistent products and platforms. Um, so everything that my team does is broken down using domain-driven design architecturally into either specific customer journeys experiences or enabling enterprise platforms. And we build those things in Agile. So we have dedicated teams working on the business side as product managers and product owners, partnering with dedicated technology leaders who then sprint every two weeks to be able to deliver the associated requirements. So I'd say the answer of how we partner with tech, we partner through Agile. It seems like there's really been a big transformation at Wells Fargo overall, because I know that you joined, but there was a lot of other really incredible executives who joined over the last two years or so. So is, is this agile mentality and, and, um, and uh, what should I call it, uh, mechanism for working uh, recent? And is it part of the big change? Um, I think it's something that's taken off certainly in the last year. It had been started before I arrived by a great um, peer of mine named Madhu Narasimhan. Um, she runs the Enterprise Agile Transformation. And so it had definitely been started, um, but we're, we're now trying to make sure we take even greater ownership within each of our lines of business to drive the transformation, to make sure that we're figuring out what our products and platforms and experiences need to be and activating and training the right people. Um, I just yesterday spoke at a training for 200 people who are being trained in Agile methodologies and product owner mindset. And so helping just introduce them to the training and, and wishing them luck, but we're doing that at scale as we speak. So it's, it's not something that's by any means completed as a transformation. I'd say we're still early in the journey, but there's a lot of senior commitment to the direction, which is great. That's awesome. Um, okay, so taking a, a step back into your, your past experience, so I know that um, at some point you used to be or were an entrepreneur briefly, and I don't think it's featured on your LinkedIn, but I thought I would pull that nugget out 
and ask you, I guess, first about the fact that you got started in consulting and, and then you kind of went over to Chase and then there's this gap that is unspoken for, which is the entrepreneurial phase. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. So, I mean, I started, initially started my career thinking I was going to be an economist and I was positive I was going to end up being an academic. And I worked with an amazing professor at Harvard Business School for two years. And, and I learned a couple of things from him. Number one, I learned how to code and be a really good analyst. I learned a lot about academic discipline. I also learned that I'm very impatient. And so for me, the pace of academia was not something that was going to resonate. I need things that are you know, done yesterday, being able to drive things. And so it wasn't necessarily the right career for me, but I loved every minute of it. That led me to investment banking because you know, I thought I loved numbers and I thought I loved modeling and I assumed that involved modeling. Um, when I got there, I realized modeling and investment banking was done in Excel. It wasn't actually quantitative modeling, but fine. It was a great way for me to learn about um, the banking industry and to just get more professional experience post-college. Um, after that, I went to um, business school. And while I was there, I had an idea for a company. I was actually home on break um, visiting my parents over Thanksgiving, and my mom was going to court. And she was like, do you want to come join me? And I'd never actually seen her argue in court before. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting. So I followed her to court. And as we were driving, I asked her how she prepared for her um, courtroom appearances. And she went through all the things she did. And I said, well, didn't you, you know, for example, go through all of the recent decisions by this judge to be able to understand how they think? And she said, no. And I realized that was a really interesting opportunity that data and analytics could be able to engage in. So I laid out an entire business plan and a capability for how do you derive essential judicial decision-making from prior decisions to sell that data to lawyers. Um, starting a company was the hardest thing I've ever done. I have great admiration for, for you and what you're doing and your resilience and tenacity because it, it is not simple. And um, I, I had a prototype, I had some seed round of funding, I had some initial employees but I just couldn't sustain it. I had a mortgage and I, it was just, it was scary. And I was a bit too risk averse, I think for that lifestyle. And so that was my gap of like two years of being able to work on that. And then after that, I went to consulting. Because it's a, really that is a much idea, less risky really. career. What? Pretty good idea. Is someone else doing it? No. Are you going to go back and do it? <laughs> I might. I have a list of about 15 business ideas of things that could have reasonably good intellectual property that I could at some point start a business. I'm not yet ready to go back to that yet. I'm getting closer to being less afraid to be an entrepreneur, um, but I, I'd give it a couple of years and then I, then I will potentially go back in the game. But I, I have multiple ideas. That's just one of them that is still definitely a reasonable goal. What I'd say is also, I think it was too early for that idea. Lawyers are among the most resistant to innovation including data-driven innovation. So I was like probably 10 to 15 years too early. So we'll see. Oh, wait, yeah, a couple of years from now, who knows? Well, you know, they say that being too early is the same as being wrong, which is which is interesting when it comes yeah. to the entrepreneurial game. But at the same time, uh, a lot of companies start too early and then they just maintain that perspective and resilience until the, the time finally comes. Whichever way you look at it, I think you're going to make a great entrepreneur if you ever decide to do that. Um, and the impatience piece in particular, I think, should really help because things happen very fast. So it will feed your need for, you know. Yeah, no, well, I, eventually, I, eventually, I'll go in that direction, I think. It's a great story. Okay, so, so data and analytics was really at the core of what you were passionate about from, from kind of early on. But when you first started at Chase, 
was there a real practice around data analytics or did you really kind of create that within Chase? There, there were, were practices, but it was highly fragmented. So you had different teams sitting in multiple different lines of business and even federated within a line of business. So you had little pods of 20 people here, 30 people here. Um, and the problem with that, there are two major problems with that is one, when you've got multiple disparate teams, you never make the case for true investment in consolidated data assets and target state data assets because none of these teams have real budget or the foresight to partner. You end up with silos because all of these, these different teams have their own little silo data. And the third problem is you end up with inconsistency where different teams uh, measure success differently. They, they source their data differently. And that leads to different answers. And you could have two peers in the same organization operating off of a very different set of facts to make a business decision, which isn't helpful. Um, so I had started out running one of the teams and that grew in size. And then over time, the CEO asked if I could um, centralize all the teams, which I then did. And I brought together the data management and governance practices, the data products and data strategy practices, as well as the analytics and modeling teams under one roof to be able to create that end-to-end -end functionality. Um, which ultimately in the grand scheme of things, the main reason to do this, the most critical reason is talent. The war for talent and data and analytics is real. Um, and it's going to be harder and harder to compete for that talent if you don't have a scaled team that provides the opportunity for things like rotational programs, for mm -hmm. things like being able to career path people laterally very simply and allow people to grow to bigger and more senior jobs. Um, I, so I do think that is the future of how things, as things get more mature. That's a really interesting point that I want to stay on for a second. So when it comes to talent, where do you recruit from? Do you recruit from fellow kind of big financial institutions or do you recruit from other companies, smaller and in other industries as well? Um, it's a little of both, to be honest. I think what I find is that hiring people who have a bit of a financial services background helps um, because they're able to hit the ground running and they know the types of questions we need to answer to drive our business forward. Um, they understand the customer base, et cetera. So, so it's a little bit easier. So as you start to look at mid to senior positions, I almost always look for someone with a financial services background, not necessarily retail banking. They could come from a payments company, things like that. Um, but we also are trying to hire directly from school um, because it's really important to get just new talent in the door and train them well. So continuing to scale our rotational program um, across a couple of campuses around the country, that, that's going to be the goal for this next year. How technical do you think senior leaders within data have to be in order to be successful? It's a great question because this actually came up for me this week. And the answer is I, they need to be, as you get more senior, you need to be less technical. Um, for my level, for instance, could, could I code? Yes, I know how to code both from a computer science perspective and from a data science perspective. I took graduate level econometrics. I know all those things. Do I use that in my day job? Absolutely not. But I know enough at this point, I probably, if you asked me to code today, it would be terrible. Would it be really slow? I'd probably get things wrong. But I know enough to be dangerous to help direct how the team is operating, to know where there might be issues, to figure out where there's blockages, things like that. Um, so I think you need to understand how data flows, how modeling and data science work uh, at my level, but you don't necessarily need to be able to do the work. Uh, as you get more junior, you, you typically need to understand it and be very conversant in the methodologies and all of those things, but it's it's inverse, the level. I was going to ask you, how much coding do your teams actually do and how much of the coding that they do is what, what I call glue code in the sense that they're trying to 
put different technologies together versus you're building stuff yourself? Um, it's a good question. It depends on whether you're talking analytics coding or technical coding. So from an analytics perspective, um, people are building a lot of what I call manual scripts to, to pull data, join data, run analyses today. Not all of that is right. So being able to have a repository where people can leverage and reuse code that someone else has run is super helpful. Staging data so that you don't have to write those scripts in the first place, even better. That's what we're working towards now. Um, so all of that is, is the analytics side. From a technical perspective, uh, it depends. And I, I do think that we've adopted a very strong um, hybrid view of technology. Some things are better bought right, from vendors and configured, not customized. Other things, we are going to spend our time truly coding and customizing the things that are our competitive advantage and need to be proprietary, right? Mm -hmm. So there are aspects of what we're doing from a data perspective that I would never outsource. But when I look at our marketing tech stack, there's multiple best of breed vendors out there that I can assemble, integrate with one another, and that is way more efficient and effective than if I tried to build it all myself. Yep, that makes sense. Great answer. Okay, so what do you think is the number one challenge for deriving value from data today? Um, just the, the first is always the cleanliness of the data and the federation of the data. So there's data, there's, there's data everywhere, but we know there's gaps in the data. The data we do have is sometimes not that clean. So first, making sure it's clean, available, complete, and in one place is job number one. Once you have the data, you need to stage it strategically to be able to use it. Um, if it's for analytics, it's, it's breaking down those silos and putting the right tools on top of it. If it's for operational purposes, we have an entire data utility strategy building these fit-for-purpose data assets that then connect to our channels to drive the, the next generation experiences that we want, right? A marketing utility that automates targeting and suppressions for our marketing in our channels. So those sorts of things are, are necessary. So as you think about the financial industry in particular, what, what do you think is um, either making the, the data professionals in financial industry kind of further ahead or maybe further behind compared to other, other industries out there? Uh, I think we're probably further ahead because we've had data for generations, right? Banks have been in business for hundreds of years. Wells Fargo actually just turned 170 last week. Congrats. Uh, right? And so... We've had data for 170 years, right? Back then it was in notebooks, then it was in spreadsheets, and now it's in these massive big data environments. And so we've got all of this data around because literally we have to by law, whenever someone opens an account, we have to verify their identity and take all these details down. But every time you swipe or click, we have to make sure we note that so that we can validate that the transaction took place. So we have we've always had tons of data. We have lots of data, which I'd say is very different then um, especially big tech companies, Google had to invent search to create its own data and creates products that ge then generate data. We have the data by virtue of our own product base today. So from that perspective, we are ahead. What I'd say is that there are a lot of fintechs out there that are knocking at our door that can now um, aggregate and import data that we have about our customers to create really unique and interesting experiences that then pull our customers away and make it even more expensive to deepen and, and retain them. And so that is the thing that we need to now start getting ahead of is to say, how are we leveraging this data, not just for the basics, but to create really interesting and unique experiences predominantly in financial health 
um, to make sure we, we meet those needs for our customers. Yeah, and I think based on what you were saying before, it's also the danger of silos. If you have these fintech companies that are smaller, more nimble, they probably start without the silos. And so you, you have the silos to make up for and the centralization efforts and the digital transformation efforts to kind of get on par with the speed at which they're running. Exactly. And so that's why I, I, I really do believe organizing structure matters for success in a big company. But the second big enabler is culture. And what I've been so, so pleased at Wells Fargo is that um, the moment you join, I, I thought it was crazy when I was first interviewing. I said, wow, these people are all really nice. But you then show up and you realize actually everyone is really nice and really helpful and really kind and willing to help each other, which is not typical in a big bank or typical in a corporate environment. Um, but when you have a situation where you're organized yourself for success and you've got a great set of peers who are willing to partner, you can accomplish anything and you can be as nimble as a, as a startup in my mind. That's my goal, at least. By the way, I don't know if you've watched any of the three TV shows that are now running about founders, the, the Theranos one, the WeWork one, and the Uber one. Have you watched any of these? No, I only watch sci-fi and fantasy TV shows. <laughs> or I watch the news. I'm really boring. <laughs> well, <laughs> It, back to your point around culture, I was, uh, I, I don't want to say I was shocked because I kind of knew, but it's really interesting to see the culture that these companies have and they're the opposite of nice. So I think in some ways, you know, some of that speed that these companies run at is at the sacrifice of the culture. Not all of them function the same way, but there's definitely this very intense, you know, startup yeah. pressure that I think uh, definitely breaks culture sometimes. So I'm glad to hear Will yeah. Smart and, and, and what I'd say is like, it's nice, but it's not consensus driven. It's collaborative, but it doesn't mean everyone needs to agree. It means we're all going to respect each other and like each other, make decisions and move on and make decisions quickly in many cases because we have to. So I'm finding it just a very pleasant way to work. Right. So this question was not on our, on our list, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on it, um, especially in the context of data. Um, how, how do you think, if you think at all, about Web3 and blockchain data and um, you know, all the public data that essentially underpins the transactions that are currently happening. Is that even a, kind of in the back of your head yet or not yet? It's not really yet. I think we need to figure out what blockchain will be when it grows up. There's definitely use cases that are being explored um, within the bank about inter, inter, intra-bank, I guess, collaboration. There's definitely use cases that are being tested in Turbank about how the industry rails work. Um, using that data for other mechanisms, I'm not sure that we've thought through just yet, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about it now. You have me some, that's something for my weekend thinking list, which I literally have a weekend thinking list. Well, I'm sure that you have 15 business ideas <clears throat> you wanna go start. I think if you start thinking about blockchain data, uh, in the context of financial services and how to best harness it, you probably add the next five. Um, yeah, but, and, and it's also there's my list of sci-fi books I want to write. So it could be it could like the nexus. Do you want to write? Come together. Yes. That's. Can you give us like one idea for one book? Not yet. I have so. <laughs> I, I don't want to share it publicly yet. I don't want to laugh. I have some really. I have some cool ideas. We can share. I'll share them with you offline. 
Yeah, perfect. Sounds good. I I will share them with with uh, the audience in the outro for this episode. No, I'm joking. I won't. I, w- I wouldn't do that. But that sounds fun. I love all the ways that Sanders' life can can go on past data. Um, also, I think I think it's because you know nerdy people have the most interesting and uh, fun kind of passions. Uh, so you know, I consider you to be a, one of my nerdy friends, and as such, you've demonstrated. That you are. By the way, you just called me a nerd, but I'm okay with it because I know you're also a nerd. Yeah, so it's a compliment. That, yes, it's I, take, I take it as a compliment from you and right back at you. Exactly. Lady nerds. Hashtag lady nerds. <laughs> I like, I'm going to use that when I, yeah. There you go. Uh, well, you know, what's, what's interesting actually is that a lot of the, the executives that we're interviewing are women, if not all of them that we have on the list now. And I wonder if there's any correlation um, around kind of data and female executives. Have you seen anything like that? I would actually say it's the opposite. So typically the executives, you you find that you're over-indexed towards men in Mm. in the data and analytics space. So it it might just be your friend base. Yeah, maybe, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a bias. (laughs) I, I do too, so it's fine. Yeah, well, good. Hopefully these episodes are going to encourage more women to get into data. Um, so yeah, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, okay, next question for you. What do you think is the role of storytelling and communication in analytics? And on the flip side, what is the role of analytics in understanding the impact and optimization of storytelling? Um, I don't, you have to be a good storyteller um, in order to derive impact from analytics because analytics is just findings. Findings does not necessarily actually drive anyone to take action. And action is what leads to impact. And so you need to be a good communicator and a good storyteller to translate the analytics, the insight, and really the data before it into the impact you want to see for your customers, for your business, for your employees. Um, I think the opposite is also true. And this gets into content and why content management and content optimization is important is that Content is a form of storytelling that has not been before. I think what you brought to the fore was um, with Notch is that that hadn't been optimized and there wasn't analytics attacked and people assumed, oh, I will just throw content out there and perhaps it will work. And that's not right either. We need to be able to make sure that everything we do in communicating with our customers is creating the value and the impact that we want. And so I'd say content management and content optimization is key on that side. Awesome. Um, and to the point around storytelling uh, and making sure that the role of data is kind of known across the organization, you've talked about how you're working uh, or you're making the teams that, uh, below you work uh, in tandem across um, MarTech and analytics and data and CRM, so on and so forth. How do you advocate for the role of data across the organization? So across your peers and fellow executives who are not in the data day to day? Yeah, and it varies by area. And so what I'd say foundationally, part of my role is still that data management and governance and making sure that we can create the most high quality data in different areas. And so evangelizing through our risk and control functions, what we need to do to clean up the basics. The second is to build the target state capability. So actually building the target state analytics environments, operational data utilities, et cetera, um, so that they are there. Third is um, making sure that all of the analytics leaders start to adopt into that and are trained and we start to get our talent strategy around analytics lined up. Um, 
And then I'd say the fourth is showing impact, right? The best way to get people to be more data-driven is to show them why data-driven can drive their specific area to be more positive. And so showing them, here's how I can increase conversion rates, you know, for your ad on the website by adding this new personalization tool. Here's how I can show you way more um, data about how the frontline is working with our customers because of this new CRM system. I think all of those are examples where you're able to show, I'm able to show peers mm. that we can create value by working together. I love that. So you basically bring it back to real use cases as to how data is impacting their ultimate bottom line and KPIs. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're now at my favorite part, which is the rapid fire questions to take us home. Um, so first question, what's your favorite book and why? Um, it's the Foundation Series by Isaac Asimov. And it was the thing that put me in this direction in the first place, because the main protagonist is a guy named Harry Seldon, and he invents psychohistory, which is a way to use math to predict the future which is what led me to study econometrics and economics and, and psychology at college and led me down the path I am today. So it was formative at the age of, I don't know, 12. I think I stole all of my dad's foundation series books and I read them cover to cover and it was just, I loved them. Hashtag lady nerds. <laughs> Seriously. And that's like the least nerdy set of books I read. So like that's, oh, that's gosh. Like, those are my cool books. Do you, you know, I started rereading my advanced econometrics book from college. Uh, why? <laughs> just because I find it fun and I wanted to make sure my brain was still there, you know, not just, not just for management, but also for actual stuff. So that's why I did my CFA. That was just, just to make sure my brain still worked and I could study and learn things. It there was you go. hard, man. So you yep. get older, it gets harder to learn. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I love that, by the way. When did you do your CFA? Um, I did it, was it two years ago now, three years ago? I finished it like three years ago. That's pretty amazing. There you go. Okay, next one. What podcast do you listen to? I don't listen to podcasts very much. Between all my science fiction TV shows and books and the news. Okay. What science fiction TV show is your favorite? Um, I really loved The Expanse, but it is now over. Um, now that that is over, it is Star Trek. So between Star Trek Discovery, which season just ended, and now Star Trek Picard, I've also rewatched all of the old Star Trek at least once. Are you a fan of Marvel? Yes, I do watch most of the Marvel shows too. Oh, wow. Okay, so what's your favorite? What, what, char what Marvel character do you most identify with? Um, that's a good question. Um, I really watched a lot of like, and I, think, is it, I don't know if it's Marvel or DC. I always get confused between the two. I watch a lot of those shows on the CW, but I really loved Green Arrow, which was then called The Arrow. Oliver Queen was my favorite. I think that's DC. And as, that's as, a, as a, I, I'm like a big enough Marvel fan that I actually get offended when people compare it to DC. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm I joking. Like, I like it's, both. It's <laughs> great. I like The Avengers too. <laughs> It's fine. The Avengers are great. Um, mine is Jessica Jones. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Oh, it's yeah. I watched great. that one. That's a really dark show. Well, Super yeah. Dark. But it's also all about female empowerment. And she's, you know, this badass detective who also happens to be very strong. Actually, all of them were really dark. The Punisher, Daredevil, they were all really dark. dark. Yeah, that's like, true. Actually, Maybe that's why the arrow was dark. The Flash is not dark. The Flash is very happy. 
Typically. I don't think there's any superhero movies that aren't dark because you have to have an evil, you know, counter hero or whatever they call anti-hero that, yeah. you know, and, and then every superhero has a darkness because where there's darkness, there's light. And when there's darkness, there's greatness. You're so profound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back, back to the rapid fire questions. Final. Oh, actually, no, two more. What was your pandemic TV binge? And I hope you're going to give us something juicy, not just sci-fi and Nerdy. It literally would be sci-fi. Really? You don't watch like The Bachelor or something? Nothing? No, I don't watch anything other than sci-fi, fantasy, and the news. Okay, what does Ellie like to watch? Tell us about Ellie. Um, Ellie likes to watch me watching TV, typically. She will occasionally watch the television, but what she really hates is when I talk on the phone. So when I'm on the phone, she gets very angry. Television, she does not mind, but talking on the phone is not allowed in this house. So don't call me ever again because it pisses off my dog. Noted. Um, final question. If you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Probably George Washington. Because I think given what's going on in the world right now, seeing like the horrible, terrible things going on in, in Ukraine, um, it just gives me even greater appreciation for the founding of this country mm. and the careful thought that our founding fathers put into structuring um, our democracy. And there's so many different nuances to the checks and balances that they put into place. And I'm just really curious how much of it was intentional and how much of it was just mm -hmm. luck. And I'd really <laughs> love to find out which, right? Yeah. Were they actually that smart or was it just, you know, dumb luck that they just get, get drunk and write it all out in one night? They might've. And that, that's what no one really knows. Like, I, I, I don't think anyone can answer that question. So if I could go travel back in time or if you could travel to me, that would be interesting to find out. Well, that's a great response. Thank you for bringing it back to where the world is today. Um, and, you know, hopefully we get into a better place over the next few weeks. Sandra, thank you so much. This was so much fun. You gave us a lot of great content, a lot of good tips. You give us a personal story and a bunch of good sci-fi tips. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening to Category Makers and Wallbreakers with Anda Gonska and Bar Moses. Anda is co-founder and CEO of Notch, the content intelligence platform that enables brands to connect their digital content investments to business outcomes. Bar Moses is co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo, with a mission to accelerate the world's adoption of data by reducing data downtime. This episode was produced by Doug Ray. Visit Notch.com, that's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com for more information and to listen to more episodes.